0: Trolling, trolling for 10 baggers.
1: Trolling, trolling for 10 baggers. Thanks for joining us. You're here with Joel and Sam. We're here to talk about finding 10 baggers. That's a stop that's gone up 10 times. There isn't much out there about how you find a 10 bagger, so we chat to people who have found them before.
2: In the show, we talk to all sorts of guests about all sorts of different things, but just remember that nothing included is advice. Make sure to speak with a professional advisor about your own circumstances before making any financial or investment decisions.
1: Thank you for joining us. As you know, on our pod, we're always trying to find guests who invested in 10 baggers, but we have something absolutely cracking this time around. Our guest has found an investment, put zero money down, and still maintain a free carry investment. He's then gone on to advise them and see his returns in not just 10 bags, but many more. For this reason, we thought we absolutely had to talk to him. Please allow me to introduce David Williams, who is the owner and managing director of Keita Williams, a corporate advisory investment banking firm based in Melbourne. David has over 35 years of experience providing mergers and acquisitions, capital raising, and strategic advice. He's organised more mergers, deals and transactions of household company names than just about anyone else in the space. David, is there anything else listeners should know about your background? No, the, the less they know the better as far as I'm concerned, but uh, uh,
0: it's 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 all well documented, I think.
1: Okay, well, um, obviously some people will know that you, you started out as a, a lecturer and that enabled you to see opportunities in the agricultural space. Um, but did you want to take us through, I guess, the tassel situation, which is quite topical? Obviously, you know, you organised that uh, that transaction, $1.7 billion on behalf of the Canadian's cook, but it's actually the second time you bought the business. The first was when you bought the business out of receivership for $42.5 million and got yourself a 20% free carried interest. Can you talk us through how you structured that deal?
0: Well, um, I think it's sort of important to take a step back even from that, Sam, that, um, well, first of all, just to go back to where you were, I was teaching uh, economics and finance, and my PhD research was on cooperatives. And when I went into investment banking, uh, that led me straight in. I think first job I ever worked on was a merger between SPC and Ardmona, and then I worked for most of the major cooperatives in the country where I didn't have a conflict of interest. You know, So I worked for Bega, but that meant I couldn't work for Bonlac or for MGs and so forth. But that led, led me not only into co-ops but into the privatisation of things like the wheat boards and barley boards and so forth, and that led me to major you know, food companies as well, one of which was uh, Tassell or more particularly the salmon industry, because just to put it in context, uh, the salmon industry really started in Australia about 1986. Um, All those fish came from New Brunswick and the east coast of Canada. So it's ironic, well, you've asked me to talk about cooks buying Tassel, but it's ironic because the fish that they have in eastern Canada are the same fish that we got here in, in Australia. It's really a Canadian fish industry, a different species to what they have, for example, in New Zealand. Anyways, um, if you you looked around about 1990, there were six or seven salmon companies in Australia that had been started up, and uh, several of them were listed, um, and I was advising a couple of those at the time, and so I already had a pretty good knowledge about the salmon industry itself. Um, I'll fast forward to the fact that um, there was an industry aggregation going on for the next 10 years up to 2000, and then... uh, a dozen or more years ago, Tassel itself went into receivership. Um, I'd been advising them on and off for years, um, so I knew the company pretty well. Yeah, the receivership was being run by Corder Mintha. Uh, that's important because those guys, uh, Mark Mintha and Mark Corder, had been running uh, uh, liquidations and the sort at Arthur Anderson when I was in charge of their M&A business, so we knew each other quite well. And that's handy you know, when you come to do due diligence and the trust in each other's work and so forth. But In any case, they ran an international tender and I won that tender. That tender was for $42.5 million. The ANZ Bank was owed $42.5 million and I thought it was good enough to buy it. So let's just stop there because um, it's obviously turned out to be not a 10 bagger but a 40 or 50 bagger because what I bought for $42.5 million a dozen or more years ago, uh, I just bought again. Uh, for Cooks, which is a very large private company in Eastern Canada, for one point seven billion dollars, and so how did a company that I was able to buy for forty two and a half million dollars, uh, you know, turn itself into a company worth one point seven billion dollars? And um, and there's a whole sort of turnaround story to get to get to there. But before I get to that, when I bought it, I thought. You know, this is such a a Monty because I personally believed that it should never have been put in receivership in any case. And the ANZ Bank had it; they owed forty-two and a half million dollars, and they put it into receivership. And I believe they're a little bit trigger happy and should not have done it. Because when I looked at it, knowing the industry and having even recently at that stage been advising Tassel on acquisitions, not on on protecting its backdoor from going broke, but I believe that it could be turned around within six months, and uh, and that's largely what happened. Um, and the reason I don't believe it should have been to put into receivership was, it, um, and I won't bore with everybody with all the details is because obviously lots of different things, but a major thing was just warm water, the warm water coming down the east coast of Australia, the fish don't die, but they don't feed as much. Coles wants three or four kilo fish coming out of the water every day, but because the fish aren't feeding, they're one and a half kilos, you know, so you don't have any cash flow and so on and so forth. There's a number of sort of significant things. And when a company goes broke, it's the old 80-20 rule. Usually there's three or four things that are driving it. There's another hundred that are important, but not really important. And so I thought I could do this easily. Now, What does that sort of put me in, you know, when you think about it at the time and even today, if you go to somebody in Collins Street or Pitt Street and you say aquaculture, the first thing they think about is that's a business of the future. So the concept of aquaculture and Tassel being the biggest at the time in the country by a long way, even though it was in receivership, um, it, 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 it resonates with people. They're sold on the concept straight away. Uh, and that's pretty That's pretty handy because a lot of times when you go out to raise money, you talk about a company, you've got to spend half a day talking about what it actually does and trying to get people to understand it. But, you know, this is an aquaculture business. It grows salmon. What else do you want to know, you know? And so I was able to go out and then raise uh, the $42 million to get this thing recapitalized. You'll laugh at this, but even though the ANZ Bank put it into receivership, they put $10 bucks back into my deal. So as debt. So uh, go figure. But there's, there's a lot of interesting little anecdotes and stories. But when I went out, I decided that the deal was good enough and obvious enough that I could sell it to institutions very quickly at a much higher price than $42.5 million. So I forget the exact metrics, but let's say I valued it at 60. And I went around, I did a road show for four days, Melbourne, Sydney only, and I saw all the usual suspects, the Thornies and the Whams and, you know, champs and everybody there. I probably saw 60 people by Thursday afternoon. I ended up in Sydney. And, um, and of the 60, I had like 50 people bid. I was looking for roughly 40 mil and I got bid 90 mil. So sort of sliced them all back and slammed the bag and and off I went to the races, you know, but when I went out, I decided to price it at roughly let's say 60 million. So I remember having this, conversation just one meeting because you'll everybody will know this guy but Jeff Wilson and I had a meeting in the coffee shop underneath where Wham is in Sydney that's where they used to do their meetings that's how little money they had and uh every time I got a sentence or two into the presentation Jeff Wilsons going to hang on a minute hang on a minute you haven't even bought the company it's you've bought it subject to finance you haven't even bought the company and you're trying to sell it to me for 60 even though you're buying it for 42 and a half and I go, that's correct. So I get off again. I start on. He goes, hang on, hang on, I just can't get this straight. You're asking for 60, but you're only buying it for 42 and a half. And you haven't bought it. And I go, yes. And in the end, I had to say to him, Jeff, listen, do you want to be in the bloody deal or not? You know, yeah, 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 yeah. So so everybody was in, and uh, and I got uh 20 free carry. So it, it, I'll I'll short circuit the the race to where we are now, where somebody pays $1.5 billion for it. So it goes from making losses to now I can do 175, 170 million profit, profit, a business that I bought for 42. And so, you know, but how was I able to get that free carry? How did I get this pump up? You know, you've got a soil product. It's in receivership, for Christ's sake! You know, it's had—it's a big company; it's the biggest in the country by a long way, um, and it's selling to all the majors, Coles and Woolies and so forth. How do you get that twenty percent? Well, you've got to have a believable story, and I—I had, I had two things going for me, and I think this is this is essential for getting a free carry anywhere. You've got to have a—you've got to have something you're bringing to the party that nobody else has got. So uh, what have I got? Well, a new ag, a new food, a new tassel, and I and I knew how to fix the tassel business, uh, partly because of my experience and partly because Mark Ryan, who was running it for Court of Mentor, had done so much work that together, you know, we're able to see uh, the light at the end of the tunnel quickly. The second thing you've got is I had exclusivity. So even if people really like my story, nobody was able to cut my lunch. They couldn't say shit. This is he's bought a bargain here. Which which I did, and um, and you know come and try and do it themselves. Just as another aside, for example, before I bought the business, uh, Webster's, which was a listed company down in Hobart, doing apples and carrots, and they also had a big uh, salmon operation. And so they asked me to come down and advise them on buying Tassel out of a receivership. So I went down and I quoted in my fee. I forget what it was, but let's say it's half a million. And Rod Roberts, who was the chairman at that stage, said to me, David, I'm not going to pay you that much. We'll do it ourselves. We okay. go, okay, stiff. See so, yeah, how you go. So uh, so then I bid, and guess what? I overbid them, but not by much, apparently. I don't know what the bids were. So within a day of me signing it and it being announced, it's it's by the way, I've signed it subject to DD and subject to funding. What have I got? I've got a free option, right? It, it, you're going to ask me, well, have any of these things gone bad? If you structure them this way, they never go bad. You know, you've got a free option. And if you don't raise the money or you find some shit in the DD you don't like, you walk away. Okay, there could be a reputational problem, but it's it, it's a free carry basically, you know. And so I said to him, no, no, go, go. So within a day of me buying it, I get a call from the then CEO of where he wants to come and see me. And in my office in Melbourne, he says, um, okay, smart ass." Uh, we'll buy you out of your contract. And I said, Well, I haven't even finished it yet. He said, Yeah, yeah we'll, we'll step into your shoes and we'll buy it at you out of your contract. And I can't remember the numbers, but they're in this order. And he said, I said, Well, what are you offering? He said, Oh, $5 million. And, and I said, Hang on, it's not for sale, $5 million. I just bought the thing, you know. And he goes, All right, all right, all right, I'll give you $10 million. And I, and I said to him, Mate, are you the guy that I went down and saw in Hobart only months ago and you refused to pay my $500,000 fee? Is that the same guy? <laughs> And he's saying to me, fuck off. You know, so anyway, it was very hilarious. And um, but I, I, I tell you that not to make fun of them, but rather to to say that even people in the industry thought it was a fantastic deal, you know. And you might ask, well, why didn't they bid higher? And well, that that's all lost in the midst of time. But the short story is I had exclusivity and I also had industry knowledge. And I had a story that went with that industry knowledge and exclusivity that allowed me to say to people, listen. I've done a good deal for myself here. If you want to be on board, then you're going to come on board at a sixty million dollar price. Well, as you can see, uh, we just paid one point seven billion for that. So the insos that came in, and then the stock quickly went to hundred million market cap, and two hundred million market cap, three hundred million market cap, and now you see what the cooks people have paid. Um, that twenty percent free carry can become. You know, very very profitable. I mean, what it's—I don't think about it in terms of ten baggers and twenty baggers and forty baggers. If you're into the start, you have got a forty-five bagger, right? But uh, I don't think about that at all because for me, it's a free carry. And what have I paid for the free carry? Zero. So, so ten baggers, like it's—that's the poor people's answer, in my opinion. No, because because what you're getting is it's, it's an infinite return. I didn't put a cent in, and I took a lot out. That's 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 the sort of the game that that i play you know but that's essentially uh the tassel story there's a lot of bells and whistles and and war stories that go in and around it of course both uh when i went in and then when we bought it back and um as you quite rightly said sam uh you know i bought the business twice now so uh it's uh, it's quite ironic in in many ways Uh, but, you know, a business that I bought that I think at the time was doing about 4,000 tonnes and was the biggest in the country is now doing circa 40,000 tonnes of salmon. Hewins up around the same. And then with Petunia and a couple of others, you've got roughly, put a circle around 100,000 tonnes of salmon coming out of Tasmania. It's an unbelievable success story uh, for, for, for Tasmania as well. But the other thing I think it shouldn't be lost on anybody is that even though people go, oh, you're a genius, you bought something for 42 million, if i went back and had a look at how much capital had been spent on the business when i bought it it was probably of the order of 300 million so between 1986 when the industry started and been you know 20 years later or 15 years later when i came in formally you know a lot of people have gone broke and that is the sort of the essence of aquaculture that a lot of the first timers have gone out the window and that's true of other species in australia in prawns in, uh, in barramundi and and elsewhere um there's a there's a successful formula and in tassel we put that in place but you know i I was standing on the shoulders of giants who had had spent the money and had the vision i didn't have the vision i just sort of fixed up what other people had created so it sounds like it's cheap but it wasn't cheap to the people who put in the 300 million to get it to 42 million you know
2: yeah, you've actually you've answered a few questions I was going to ask you there David, but one I guess on the transaction itself is do you know what the sort of value of the company was prior to its ultimate receivership? Like do you think people were sort of hop, sniffing a bargain as well? You might, you got some pushback by getting a buying it for 40 and trying to sell it for 60, but yeah. were some of the people that coming in think, "Oh, well there's been 300 billion billion of capital in there and we're going to get to buy it for pennies on the dollar?"
0: No, I think it, I think it, it, that is attractive to some people, you know, because they're in, especially in those days, a lot of the smaller funds had gun you know, analysts who basically just looked at a balance sheet and then asset backing, which is all BS as far as I'm concerned. But today, people are much more sophisticated than that. And they were sophisticated then. They didn't look at it as, okay, there's 300 million, you still got to make it work. And when you go out to raise money for a company that's coming out of receivership, you better have a good story. It's other than just the assets are there, three hundred million people went broke on that three hundred million. You know, so they're not focused on that. It helps if the story's great. They go, oh, "Shit, this is great. This guy's now finally going to make those assets work." But it, the primary concern is what is the turnaround story? You know, I think something you
2: just in the response there. So you're saying the the balance sheet and the assets being worth something is BS. Do you think there's a lot? There's too much emphasis put on the numbers and the financial statements sometimes on a transaction, and that people need to look a bit further.
0: Or look no. differently? Well, always due diligence is really important. And uh, I, I wouldn't go far as far as to say that there's too much emphasis put on the balance sheet and the income statement. But, you know, those in financial accounting know that there's some very significant limitations, of, especially of the PL and um, with accounting standards and so forth. So you've got to look through that um, and, and make sure you know what the real story is. And ironically, the smaller the company, the harder you need to look. You know, so if you're looking at a smaller private or large private-like company where there's cash involved and false bank accounts and family on the books, and yeah, you know, there's a lot that needs to and stock manipulation or whatever. There's a lot that needs to be normalised in order to get to the right to the bottom of the story. But when you're doing a deal like the deals that I'm doing, the you need to do that. That's layer one. But layer two is what are you going to do to change it? Now, what are you going to do? To, to make sure, let's say, for example, I, I said the only reason, I, I'm making this up, but the only reason Tassel went broke was because the water was too warm and the f- fish didn't feed and they didn't grow, right? Let's say that was the only reason. Okay, so I go and buy it for what seems like a cheap price. But how are we going to fix that? You know, how, how does that get fixed? So that's why I say if I dug deeper into this and showed you how two or three or four things only Really changed the trajectory of, of Tasal and turned it into a profitable company very much from day one. You know, certainly after six months and twelve months. And so, you know, the, and that it's not that they weren't obvious to other people. The world was changing. You know, water temperatures are changing, and and um, and uh, new leases are coming up around Tasmania, and and so forth. So, um, it's I, I don't want to make myself sound like. You know, I'm a genius. When I was really taking all the hard work and the and the and the problems that other people had proved up for me uh, in order to solve them, and uh, and and again, I was only the chairman, even though I was a larger shareholder, and I had Mark Ryan there who had been in the receivership, and I kept him on as CEO, so he was responsible for the day to day delivery of all this. You know, I'd
2: like to dig into that a bit further in a minute, I suppose, about what things you need to look at and then can proactively change but just to sort of keep on in terms of the history keep it in order and going back a few steps you you mentioned the importance of the people that you knew with the transaction that you know your time at arthur anderson and quarter and then the trust and relationships you'd built there And i'm just wondering if we could talk a bit more about how you found yourself in the spot so what were some of the previous experiences and the importance of the relationships that you'd built and if you've got any reflections on that
0: Um, Yeah, well, I think it it goes right through the chain, Joel. So, for example, when I go out to raise money, there are fund managers, for example, who will say to me when you walk in the door, look, I don't want to see the deck, how much you're looking for, and you go, oh, look, I'm looking for 50, and how much do you want from me? Four. Okay, put me down. That's it. How do they come to do that? They come to do that because they invested in uh, in Polynovo, and they invest in Tassel, they invest in medical developments. And so you build up this sort of track record of trust. And 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 sometimes one of the most wealthy families in Australia said to me recently on a raising, they said, have you done the due diligence? And I said, yeah. And they said, do you, do you believe in it? I said, yeah. And they said, all right, put us in for two. You know, so you go. And, and so this is all built on credibility. And you, you will know better than I that in this industry, you're only as good as your last deal. So if you stuff it up, you're gonna be you're gonna be a long time walking in the desert in the wilderness, you know, in order to get back. But that goes down through the chain. So when you come to something like a, a receivership, such as Cordamenta, now quarter, Mark order quarter had been under John Sharp running liquidations in that at Arthur Anderson. I was running the MA department. So, you know, in those days you worked not so much closely together, but they're on the same floor and so you see them, you see the quality of their work, you see the quality of the people and you know what sort of modelling they do and... So, you know, when you come to into a receivership where oftentimes you need to make really quick decisions, you know, things are going at fire sale prices because of that often. But and and oftentimes, therefore, the only people who can really be the people who understand the industry, otherwise it's just too risky, you know, especially in a receivership. So, so you know, I was in a unique position where I, I knew all of these people throughout the chain. I knew Mark Ryan, Mintha Porter, et cetera. Um, but in addition to that, Right up until the last minute, I had been advising Tassel on the acquisition of a feed business. So here we are, you know, going full steam ahead to to buy a fish feed business, thinking there's no problems whatsoever, and suddenly overnight, ANZ pulled the rug out. So I was right up to speed with the board, with the CFO, with the MD, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a a sort of some accidents of history that go to de-risk uh, the situation
1: you know that's really interesting David I, I, I know I guess we're, what I think our listeners are interested in is any bits of advice for others about how they are looking how they can pull off their own sort of tassel transaction how they can get a free carry or or how do they even find bags I think you want to separate the two but perhaps any advice you have for listeners would be really interesting
0: I'll come to the advice just in a second but it is important I think to separate out this how do you find a 10 bagger or 40 bagger or whatever it is from how you get a free carried interest? And as I said, you know, for me trying to get a free carried interest, you better have something unique that comes to the transaction where people go, yeah, I like the deal, but I also acknowledge that you're the only one who can deliver it. Or I like the deal. And I, even though I'd love to, you know, maybe go around the back door and do it myself, I see that you've got exclusivity. Those two things, together or alone, can deliver you a, a free carry. And um, and so I often say to people, if the deal's good enough, then it should be good enough to get a free carry. Doesn't mean it's not a bad deal. It, you know, I, whether I got a free carry or not in Tassel, you know, might not have even changed the trajectory on whether it should ultimately be a one point seven billion dollar company. It might still have been done that. Arguably, when you get a free carry and you're really involved day to day and you know the business, okay, it should make a difference. But I just want to separate both those things out because there's a lot of tin baggers around and some of them are things that, um, you know, I've done myself, but where I don't have expertise, but I do have explosivity. And, um, and, And in those situations, I think what I want to make it clear to is that, you know, even no matter how wealthy you are, you often won't get to see those deals. And one of the benefits I've had is because you're in the MA business, there isn't a week goes by where somebody doesn't come in the front door, and not just me, but every other MA practice around the state. But there isn't a week goes by where somebody doesn't come in the door and go, I'm looking for funds for this. Can you help me? And, and so you that access to deal flow is what you need because you then have the ability to pick out of that. 100 deals a year or 200 deals a year, one, only one you need to make you a tassel or a polynovo or whatever it happens to be. You only need to see one. But, you know, I have some people who I deal with who are very high net worth families, billions I'm talking about, who just complain all the time. I just don't see the deal flow. And what deal flow I do see, it's already been picked over by everybody else. You know, so I'm looking for things where you can get involved on the ground floor and and then, you know, Get some sort of exclusivity if comes with it. Now, I'm going to make those two things clear. But I think coming back to your question, which I think is the most interesting, let me let me frame it a different way. There isn't, having been in this for 35 years, there's probably isn't a month goes by where a CEO doesn't turn up here to have a chat about his career. He's leaving being a CEO and he wants to do something else. Well, you know, another CEO maybe? Uh, yes, maybe. But I ask them, and and most mostly they're looking for board positions, you know. But I ask them, listen, why don't you go do something on your own? Why don't you go do a polynova or a tassel or something like that? Well, how do I do that? And I, mate, you you're, you're the CEO, you've been getting paid two million dollars a year to run a big company. You know, you've got to be able to figure that out. It's 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 easy, it's like a ward on your face, you know. So and and I think herein lies, you know, my single best piece of advice to most CEOs. Is they've been a CEO for so long that they don't, they can't see the wood for the trees, and I mean that in the literal sense. You know, they go to work every day running a fantastic company, doing a great job, but when you pull them back, they they haven't had the ability to get up in a helicopter and look at look at this from a helicopter point of view, using importantly, Sam, using their own skills. So, you know, what are my skills? And I don't think people are really honest with themselves about what their real skills are because what I'm trying to do when I'm trying to get a 10 bagger is I'm trying to match my skills to the problem in the company that I'm looking at. And so, what you know, what are my skills? You know, if you, if you walked around the town, people go, oh, yeah, he's a great investment banker. He does this sort of deal, that sort of MA deal and so forth. But i tell you what I'm really good at. I'm really good at seeing the linkages between companies, the strategic part of it, and I'm really good at finding the money. I've never run a company in my my life. I don't know anything about manufacturing technology. I don't know anything about sales and marketing. You know, could I do them? Maybe. I don't know, but I've never been tested. What I'm really good at is finding the money and seeing the linkages. And I think most uh, CEOs are underestimating how good they are in terms of what their skill base is, and those CEOs ought to go home lay on their bed, look at the ceiling at night and go, what am I really, really good at, to be honest about it, you know? And nearly in all situations, when I'm having a one-on-one with CEOs that I've worked with over a long period of time, I have a different perspective than they do, significantly different perspective than they do, about what they're really good at. Because most of them, if you have to ask them the question, they go, well, I'm good at running a company. Well, what the hell does that mean? You know, let's find out what you're really good at. And if you're really good and you, you know, you knew your industry, you'd be looking at other firms going, yeah, you know what? That goes with that. That's exactly the sort of thing i do. The real, the reason why PE firms, by the way, employ a lot of ex-CEOs is just for that. The, the CEOs can't see it, but they come and tell them, "You can, this is what you're going to see, you know? And so you know, I, there's such rich pickings out there for CEOs, and so many people underdoing. You know, they they die on the vine because they go, "Oh, well, uh, you know, I've just been terminated or whatever it happens to be," and I'll see if I can luck out and get a couple of directorships. Well, good luck in this me-too age. You know, if you're you know if you're a white Anglo-Saxon male, you're whistling Dixie. You know, so you got to think outside the square. But, you know, now is is the time and, you know, just to be honest about what you're in and then test it with people, you know. And if you do that, you will find a five-bagger or a ten-bagger, you know, because there's no gold nuggets laying on Collins Street, but there's plenty of opportunities. And the opportunities that I see are ones that just are good for me. but nearly every opportunity is good for somebody. It's just that I don't have the skills to make of it, you know, or I wouldn't even recognize it as an opportunity. But, you know, if you can re-engineer the minds of a lot of CEOs, they would make an enormous contribution to, to not only rationalization of industries, but enormous contribution to their own ability to find a, you know, 5-10 bag or whatever it is. I don't look at 5-10 bags, by the way, it's been great. I mean, Look at Polynovo, went from seven cents to two dollars seven, you know. Look at Tassel, you know, went from 42 billion to 1.7 billion, you know. They're they're, all, they're there. Um, and sometimes the solution is so simple, so simple that even I could do it. You know what I mean? It's so simple that even I can go to Polynovo and, and help turn it from seven cents into two dollars, you know. Help, help, help turn it from 30 million into 1.4 billion if you look at it today, you know. These are so 10 baggers are nothing, you know. If you can get a business that's scalable and low t- and low capital, like, you know, like you're seeing in tech and pharma, uh, you know, there's a lot of opportunities there.
1: It's really, really fascinating, David. I guess I just want to play devil's advocate for a moment because I think maybe if someone who's coming across you for the first time probably don't know that, I mean, your background and your family's background, your dad being a £10 palm, you, you've essentially started from nothing, and I want to know if, If you can ask those sort of questions as an investor, someone that's starting out for the first time, do they need to look at the ceiling and think, what am I good at? What are my interests? Uh, Are those skills that you mentioned for CEOs, are they directly transferable for an investor as well? I don't think so. I think um,
0: if you're just an investor, and I'm just an investor, for example, you know, I mean, I do all these deals we're talking about, fine, but when you make a lot of money, you go, well, well, now what am I going to do with it? Okay, well, I'll buy the odd farm or property or whatever, but in the end, I've got to put some of it back into equity. So as an investor, I'm trying to do due diligence from the outside in, and I'm trying to assess management performance from the outside in, and that is a crapshoot, you know, because... You know, sometimes you're lucky and you get right into the inner sanctum. And I do I rarely do things where I don't go and do a fair bit of due diligence on where the industry's going, what the company's doing, and and so on and so forth. But um I prefer to be in the driver's seat. But I think as an investor, you you don't have any alternative but to do your own due diligence. And now some of that is simple. It's a bit like what I said before: if you trust somebody who's been good to you. So you know, if you've got an advisor who's a broker and, and all he's done is Tip you out good stocks all the time, and you're making your, you know, a nice little eight percent or ten percent or whatever makes people happy. Great, you know you might not need to do any DD, but you know I don't have I, I, I don't have that trust in any of my brokers. So I mean they're all good guys, in that, but I, I, I do my DD in a different way. You know,
2: I think but, the the tassel transaction sounds really important. That that work you have done with the company prior to know what you're going in for, and not having to reap Try and redo that diligence by the same yeah. thing.
0: But look, I mean, as an investor, you also work on credibility. So, I mean, when I when I went into um, Polynovo, for example, I bought I bought this business. This is a green whistle um, that is in every ambulance in the country. Right now, I, it was being manufactured out of Oakley, uh Springvale, I should say, and uh, I it was making a million dollars a year, and I bought it for ten point five million. Again, subject to DD. And subject to funding. I went out and did the IPO of it. Believe it or not, I IPO'd this at 16 million. I mean, who would IPO a company at 16 million? But anyway, and um, it then I, I got 38% for free. So I bought it for 10.5, flown it at 16, got 38% for free. It was profitable. So in the next few years, my holding went to 52%. The stock went to 800 million. So, you know, it's if somebody went into that, And then I turned up the next day and I said to them, look, um, guys, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go into Polynova. So the Polynova people have been messing around with this technology for ages, didn't have any sales. And they saw the green whistle and they said, would you mind coming in and being chairman of Polynova? That's how it happened. And I said, I'm not going to do it unless I get a free carry. So I had a big swag of options uh, and I think, When I went in, I think the share price was seven cents and I had options at 12 and 20 and so forth. Well, today, this morning it's two bucks a share, you know, and the things capped at 1.3, 1.4 billion. Right. But in that case, people, a lot of people, hundreds of people came along for the ride. They just said, shit, if you can do with Polynovo half of what you did with medical developments, I'm in. So there's it's not due diligence but again it's what i said about your broker if you trust your broker and you think he can deliver now i've got a form on my head and, and these things are not just one person it's the whole management team and you know and so forth but um you know there, there's if i announced tomorrow that i was I'd, I'd done a whole lot of dd on this new farm or a tech company and something like that i, I can guarantee you there'll be 50 hundred people come along straight away you know looking to get equity in it so that's part of your due diligence is do you trust the people who are managing your superannuation fund, you
2: know? Yeah, I guess it's much the same thing. It's just a, you're assessing different people for different reasons. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. I mean, you mentioned there that that transaction could have fallen on its head. Do you have any sort of disastrous stories that, you, that you're that you willing to share or that you've had learning experiences
0: from? No, because I think it, it, the answer is in is in what I do. You know, the answer is in what I do, that if, if you do a deal with a free carry on it, then you have got by definition a, a free option. So if the DD doesn't f- figure out, right? Or the money doesn't figure out, you walk away. Or if they do f- figure out and you do the deal, you've still got a free carry. So let's say if the company went broke, you go, oh, well, you know, I, I didn't lose anything. I feel sorry for shareholders because that's not how I do it. But, you know, but you know, that's it's it's what I try to do is to is to take away that disaster. It not take it, doesn't take it away for you know people who follow you in yep. but um it's uh so really
2: managing that downside risk entirely basically exactly really interesting stories i think um i suppose just to go back a little bit more on your background and i think you were sort of talking about ceo's experience and they don't know the the knowledge and the experience that they've got sometimes or their you know their capacity when was it for you that you sort of realized that the MA space was actually such fertile grounds that were you I'm assuming you didn't say that going, oh, I'm going to open an M&A shop and try and see all these deals. Was there sort of a moment where you thought, this is where my skills are and where I can really succeed?
0: Um, Look, I think as an M&A guy, because I was an M&A guy for 25 years before I did Tassel, for example, you know, I've I've always had sort of an inquiring mind as to what goes with what. That's what you do as an M&A guy, you know. I mean, there's people who have got big brand names behind them where a lot of work flows in the door from the international franchise or something. But in the main, you know, the those of us in the sort of mid-market, the guys who are doing $500 million deals and so forth, we have to go out and we eat what we kill. So you've got to go out and sell. And in selling, you, you know, you ring up Alison at, say, I don't know, Coca-Cola and go, listen, can I come and have a chat to you? I think you should take over Bundaberg and blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and she'll go... I thought about that two years ago, the idea sucked. Or, I, no, I, I haven't thought about that. Why don't you go and do some work and then come back and you can have the gig? So, so that's what our way of thinking as as an m and guy. So I was always interested in in whether I could do that or not. And when I went out on my own, that's when it dawned to me, Joel, that you could do it yourself. Because when you're working for big ticket banks or, you know, if you're working for Arthur Anderson or ANZ Bank, as I was, or Packer, you know, it, the compliance will kill you. If I was if I was working at um uh Society General, which I was, for example, right, and I said went and said, I think we should buy or I should buy tassel they would have had a heart attack. Because their focus <laughs> is hang on, if this goes belly up, what's that going to do to our reputation? So when you go out on your own, your compliance is, you know, well, first of all, reporting to you, but um you know, it's, it's a much easier way to do it and you're less worried about some of the things that the international networks are worried about. So that's, like well, I went out on my own and within three months I bought Tassel and within six months I bought Medical Developments. It happens that quickly. You know, there's a, there's a sort of pent-up demand and any CEO who's worth his salt should be able to tell you half a dozen things that could work, you know, with the right, with his type of management should be able to do that and in the main a lot of them would be things that they've already looked at anyway you know we looked at this but it didn't fit our strategic rationale but it fits somebody else's strategic rationale and now I'm free to that burden I ought to be able to I ought to be able to convince somebody like a David Williams for example you know that this is worth funding
2: yeah that's a really interesting perspective like a deal that might not be right for somebody and you've done your work on it doesn't mean it's valueless if you know if you've got the right people to talk to and
0: almost certainly you know, Every person yeah. that comes into this office during the week has a deal. Most of them aren't for me because they don't fit with my skill base. But they're good for somebody. They're good for bigger because it's in probiotics and dairy or they're good for Coca-Cola because it's in, you know, um, juices and, you know, whatever, you know. But they're, they're not for me. And and that's, you know, you've got to be disciplined. Once you've decided what you're good at, which is hard enough decision in itself, you've then got to be disciplined, you know, not to go after all the other Flotsam and Jetsam,
2: you know. Probably sounds harder than it, than it sounds probably. Uh, yeah. Just on the, you mentioned there a few times, the compliance aspect if you're in a bigger firm. Do you see many changes in the industry now versus when you started, whether it's you know, compliance, regulations, the people that you work with, all the companies?
0: Yeah, yeah, no, there's lots of changes. And, um I mean, there, there's many le- layers to the, to answer that. I mean, the biggest change that we've seen in the industry in 30 years is all the technological changes, you know, and the number of PAs you need and the and the red books that used to have all the ASX listings and the misinformation that would come out of the fact that you couldn't just type in, uh, you know, a code and get get the history and so forth. There's, there's so many changes in technology, deals, you know, rankings, all that sort of stuff. Uh, so that's interesting. I think this, the second thing is... All the compliance changes, it's only just going one way. And um as a consequence, you know, you've got countries where you can't be a like an accounting firm and do advisory, or you can't be, you know, a broker and do valuations. And, you know, a lot of these things make sense, of course, but it's just getting worse. And um that just makes it harder and harder to do to do business. But um, you know, people could argue that it 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 um also makes it
1: a bit more transparent and honest, you know. It's interesting, David. One of the things I'd like to know is if you were, if you were a younger version of yourself, what what number one bit of advice could you give? Uh, look, the the thing
0: is, two bits of advice you need. I think one is to make sure you've got a decent skill base. So get out there and learn about numbers. I mean, we're talking about companies and numbers and, and so forth. get the really the numbers down right and get yourself able to do some modeling there's some again technology there's firms that just do this all the time for all the major firms in terms of you know learning the street and the modeling that goes with it and so forth but get yourself a good solid set, set of number skills the second thing you need is you need to get into a firm where you've got a good mentor and there's two things that come with that. One is to get a good mentor, but the other one is to get into a firm where you actually can learn a lot uh, in terms of the thought, sort of, if you're interested in what I'm interested in, you know, it, where you can learn a lot about mid-market work. Because there's no use, when I was at, for example, Arthur Anderson and I'm running MA, the best guy in order, for example, the smartest guy, the most valued guy, he'd be doing on the he'd be doing the BHP account and he'd be working on accounts receivable. That's it. That's his life. You know, I want to slush my riches by the end of the year. You know, but that's but what you really need. You know, a person who went into it and he was working in the small business section, where a guy comes in and gives him a, a shoebox full of receipts and goes, "There's my business. Do my accounts." You know, and he does fifty of those a year. You'll really see what our business works. You know, so the you know the one of the problems with M and A is that the transaction can be so big and so long that you, you risk getting yourself stuck in one rut for the whole year doing a whole transaction and then it never coming off. And sitting right next to you, it might be a guy or a girl that's done 10 transactions for the year, an IPO, a fundraising, a follow-on, or you know, an MA, a privatization. And here you are stuck in a rut doing a mining company transaction that never happened. You know, so you need to try and get yourself in if you're a student of this. Um, you need to try and get yourself into a situation where you've got a mentor. I'm talking about it from an MA, you know, point of view. But if you're an investor, you need that sort of mentor as well. And some of these clubs, investor clubs that they've got are okay, but normally it's the blind leading the blind. But if you get into one of those that has, you know, monthly speakers, like I spoke to one the other day, Australian Shareholders Association in Ballarat or something, you know, 20 or 30 people come along and, you know, that's where you start to get that's where you can sort of derive a sort of mentorship if you like you know
1: yeah yeah now that's interesting david in the back of my mind i just want to hone back into your background because i think you've remarked a few times about how your dad was a tram driver and you used to see a lot of people and that enabled you to interact with people what were some of the things that you learned when you were really young or anything moments that sort of steered you into agricultural work
0: Um, It wasn't that. I think if there was a defining anything, um, it was uh, I I worked in a milk bar after school for about five years. And uh, it was a in those days it was a real mixed business. You know, in other words, it sold lollies and it sold newspapers and it sold dairy and meat and the whole box and dice, right, and um, chocolates and so forth. And uh, in that environment you have to talk to everybody. So you got, you know, 90-year-old ladies coming in, you've got five-year-old kids coming in, you you know, people who are pricks and people who are delightful. And you've got to be, you've got to learn to be all things to all people, otherwise you don't survive. And you know, this this is an important lesson because I often say this to my staff that, you know, we'll get a guy in who's 60, 70 years old. He's as rough as guts. You know, this is a guy you'll find down the pub with, you know, as we used to say in the old days, sawdust on the floor, you know, swearing and cussing and, and so forth. The next day you've got to go and meet the Prime Minister and talk to him about something. So you've got to be all things to all people. You can't, you know, because people are interested in dealing with you if you are like them, you know, in many ways you know well i say that in a very broad sense so you know that the talking skills are really really important you know the ability to interact with somebody and not be a you know a a silver spoon smart ass and not be a ruffian at the same time you know there's the interpersonal skills should never be underestimated you know people are you know when you're trying to do deals like this people want to hear the story and it of course, I need people behind me that have got great modelling skills. They might not be able to even have to talk. We don't care, you know, as long as they get that piece of the work done. But the front person and the person doing the
1: interactions needs to be able to talk and relate. Really, really insightful, David. I guess one thing, finally, if you had to say one thing that gets you out of bed, Every day, I'm sure it's not the money. What is it? Is it about the networking? Is it about meeting people? Is it the interpersonal skills? Is is that what makes you tick? The thing that makes
0: me tick is is talking to people about business and trying to find those interactions. Not just you know, I'm interested. Investment bankers are distrustful people to have dinner or lunch with, right? Because <laughs> They're like sponges. They're going to find something in what you say. They're going to try and turn it into a deal for themselves. And um, But, you know, I'm interested to hear what people do for a living because as people are talking to me, you know, I've got these little compartments in my tiny head that say, shit, he should be talking to X or he should be talking to Y. And the number of times each week I introduce people to talk to each other where there's no deal for me whatsoever. But oftentimes there is a deal. And, you know, you'll say to people, have you ever thought about this? And no, and as I said to you before, of Alison Watkins, she'll either say, "Yeah, I thought about it too. You got sucked," or "No, I haven't thought about it. that. It's interesting." Well, let me let me introduce you. Let's see where we go. You know, um, so there's just so much, so much low hanging fruit, you know, for most businesses, and uh, you know, I'm just one little cog in that wheel that tries to, you know, introduce ideas, people, and concepts to try and, yeah. I do it for because it makes me happy but I also do it because my clients will go you know what even though that person you introduced me to has got a 2 million dollar business way too small for your fees or us but shit thanks for thinking of me you know and it's made me think in a different way you know
2: just one last question David looking at the time I know we've got to wrap it up but you sort of answered this already but um you fit this podcast recording in for us before you're off to a wedding soon on first day of the new year you're obviously a very busy man and we really appreciate your time but I'm wondering you're taking business ideas out of a, out of a, you know, dinner dinner with mates what do you think of the phrase work-life balance and when you hear that
0: you know what my it's it's impossible to have what most people think is work-life balance when you're working in m a it's a young man's sport really and I'm probably the oldest guy in town to be honest I mean by by far you know even Wiley is now retired I mean he's just turned 60 i think you'll probably kill me he's probably 58 but you know it, most people are gone by the time they're 50 55 and moved into a corporate role or gone and done something on their own you know i i get my it, you know, as i just said to sam you know i get my rocks off by you know figuring out new linkages and you know trying to bring value to people um and hopefully sometimes to ourselves you know? but um i you know what I, I i love good food i love good wine you know, I'm very close with, say, Pete Gago. makes grain, so we have a lot of, you know, a lot of wine and food type dinners. Um, that's 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 a good work life balance for me. You know, I got a couple of kids who are doing just fine on their own without me interfering.
2: <laughs> As I know, look, I ask because I think it's um, so many of the guests that we speak to obviously are so passionate about what they do that it does take over all aspects of their lives. And if if someone's trying to do you know the same thing or compete in any industry, if if you spend, you know, three hours on something versus thirty hours, obviously you're at a disadvantage. And I think that's just yeah. something to take home for anybody that wants to do similar things in any space.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's easier said than done. You know, I mean, I, I often say to people, nobody believes this when I tell them, and they look at me now. But I, you know, I used to run marathons and I played grade one rugby. You know, but uh, you know, and I wish I did still some of that. But it's it's not easy to do practice sessions when you're you know working on deals through the night. You know.
1: No, well, um, David, that's some really wonderful insights and thank you for giving up your time and sharing those. I think with uh, fine dining and fine wine is, is not a bad way to finish up and hopefully you get a bit of that uh, later today at uh, said wedding. But um, just lastly, uh, if anyone did want to get in touch and get more information about Kidder Williams, where, where can they go? Oh, they can just
0: look at our website and it'll get me on LinkedIn. Um, I'm pretty easy to get and my numbers are all on uh, ASX releases for Polynova and Rate My Agent and, and other things. Uh, but just one final word from me. Look, don't concentrate too much on me. I'm just another schlepper, you know, messing around in the gutter like everybody else. But, you know, the one that takeout I'd love people to think about, especially CEOs in particular, is, you know, take a hard look at yourself because I think so many are just underdoing what they're capable of and not and leaving aside one of the greatest opportunities that they might have still
2: in their life you know it's a fantastic take-home thank you so much david for your time and advice this morning anytime see you guys
1: great thanks david
2: thank you have a great day music in this episode is called 10 minutes by green monday and from TwinMusicom.org. remember the contents of this show is not financial advice If you have questions or need more information about your own circumstances, make sure to contact a professional financial advisor.